Well, it's good to see you here on a Wednesday night when the weather is like May. But it's great to see you. And a couple of things I want to remind you of before we go into the message tonight. I had somebody just now ask me, how do you join this church? And Sunday in the second service, we had them stem to stern that we're interested in church membership. And um, I want to just, those of you that are involved in any way in the church, like ushering, greeting, or would like to be, we have a new, I don't want to call it a class, but it's a new class. (laughs) Course. And we call it Go the Distance. And it started last Sunday at 11 o'clock. The very first course is Membership 101. Now, if you missed that, it's not too late for you to get into that course. It's 10 weeks, and it's brand new. It's covering four bases. It's it's like a baseball diamond. I wish I had a picture up here of what we just hung in that room. Maybe we can get that. But anyway, um, you'll... When you're done with a base, you're given a card that you completed it. When you get done with the whole, all four bases, then you are introduced to a possible ministry for yourself. We have a ministry fair because we believe a church's success is not measured by the numbers of people that are there on a weekend. A church's success is measured by how many of those people are in ministry. How's that? How many of those people? Because he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints, that be you, to do the work of ministry. So a church's success is not numbers per se, though we certainly want them, but it's how many of those numbers are doing something to supply the body of Christ with their gift and reaching people. So you can start this Sunday. And if you're a greeter or an usher, I'm going to ask you to get in it and go those bases. And uh, uh, George, you're teaching it, right? George Dawson's teaching it. And uh, so I want to make you aware of that. And we don't charge you. You don't have to get a ticket. You just go. We'll miss you. You can come to the early service and then go if you want to. But I encourage you to do it. Or come Saturday night and go Sunday. We make it real possible to get in here and do something. All right? All right. Galatians, part eight. What a strange title, the bond woman and the free woman. Every free woman in here say amen. Amen. I'm not going to ask for the bond women. Somebody say amen. We'd have to have an altar call. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's pray together, and then we're going to get into it. And boy, I'll tell you, this is getting rich. Lord, we just thank you for the Word of God. And that you're teaching your people the Scriptures. We are not ignorant. We are not biblically illiterate. And with the wisdom of the Lord, your blessing with your power. We ask you to open our mind, open our understanding to receive the Word of God. Now, will you breathe a prayer, church? And say, I receive, Lord, with meekness, the the engrafted word, able to save my soul, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you're going to be blessed tonight. Valerie, can you come here a second? When is John Collier here? John Collier here? 
February 23rd. Okay. All right. God is good. Amen. I got to tell you, if you weren't here Sunday for the nine o'clock service, I wasn't either. I couldn't make it. My struggle with my voice and stuff and uh, just wanting to let it rest. And then we showed a video of the Saturday night and everybody liked it. One guy walked in and something, thought something was wrong with him because he looked and he saw the screen and not me. And he thought something was wrong with his mind. But that was a cheap guest speaker. All right. Now, last time we saw Paul appealing to the conscience and love of the Galatians toward him. He has appealed to his history with them, referencing that they would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him. I can't think of anybody I would do that for. Hopefully Jesus. But what a thing to say. That's how much they love this man. Their apostle, their teacher, But now the Apostle Paul turns his attention to those that would lure them back into bondage to Old Testament law and rules. Nothing made Paul matter with righteous anger than somebody would come along and muddy up the waters of the message of grace and lure people away who had been saved through grace by faith back into Old Testament law as if they could save themselves. So Galatians is all about, Paul led these people to Christ, then he left, and in his absence, in came the wolves. They always come in when the strong man is gone. They always come in when there's a vulnerability. Satan doesn't fight fair. Never. So when they were vulnerable and the apostle was gone, then here comes the wolves. And the wolves were the Judaizers. The Judaizers were teaching them that they needed to go back to Old Testament law and mix that with New Testament grace. And he was luring them away from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. The simplicity is I'm saved by faith, through grace, not of myself, lest I should boast that I did it, but it's a gift of God. Period. We receive salvation as a gift. Now, in verse 17... He talks about these people. He says, those people are zealous to win you over, but not for anything good. It's for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. So they were playing the divide and conquer game. Demonize Paul and lure the people away from him who he had apostled and brought into the faith and attach them to them instead. It was a psychological trip they were pulling on them. The expression zealous to win you over is from the the word zelao. And it also comes from a word meaning to boil. It carries the idea of courting someone. It can be good or bad depending on the context. And in a good sense, it can mean to desire earnestly You find that in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Or it can be used in a bad sense. It can mean to envy uh, or to be jealous, to boil, zelao, to boil. I think probably zeal comes from that word, to boil. Well, what were they doing? They were causing, uh, uh, they were jealous over the affection the people had for Paul. So they're trying to lure them away 
and attach them to them, the false teachers. Now, a person can boil with godly zeal or boil in the misery of jealousy. And how many of you know jealousy is misery? There's no more tormenting emotion than jealousy. It just eats you up alive. So the motives of the Judaizers were evil. They weren't good. They didn't have these people's good in mind. They were courting the Galatians and seeking to win them over to their views for their own ends, not because they loved them. Anybody ever realize just because somebody says they love you, they may not? Because everybody wants to hear those words, don't they? But Paul really did love them. And they really did love Paul. Now, Paul had come to evangelize, but these folks came to proselytize. Big difference. Paul contends that he was out for their good. And he mentions his teaching to them. Uh, He says in verse 18 of chapter 4, Galatians, it is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. Zeal is great as long as you're zealous over something that's worth being zealous over. But there's people that are zealous for things that are evil. And they have zeal about it. Look at these terrorists who have zeal over uh, jihad and Islam. And they go murder and slaughter and terrorize. And they're filled with zeal, but it's not over a good thing. But it's good to have red, hot, boiling zeal over a good thing. And I wish that everybody in here was red, fervent, hot, with zeal for Christ. Because that's a good thing. How many of you can say, I'm, I'm pretty hot for Christ? Amen? Amen? rest of you, you're not. You're just looking at me? Come on. How many of you are hot with zeal? You got me concerned over there. All right. Paul saw straight through the legalizers. They wanted to come between Paul and the Galatians. They wanted to drive a wedge between Paul and the Galatian church. So this is always Satan's MO, isn't it? Divide and conquer is hell's motto. He'll do it in your marriage. He'll do it between you and your children. He'll do it between you and church folks. He'll do it between you and church leadership. Any way that he can get in and drive a wedge and separate, because he knows as long as we're unified, we win. But if, we, if the unity is broken, he's able to move in and conquer. We fight for unity here. We fight for unity among the staff. We fight for it, because we know if that unity is broken, there is a doorway for the enemy to come in and wreak havoc. So we forgive, and we forgive quickly. We don't hold grudges. We don't nurse offenses. We let it go, because we know what the devil will do. Paul said, we are not ignorant of his devices. If if there's a wedge between you and a brother or a sister or a family member or a spouse, God didn't do that. It is Satan's reigning philosophy Drive a wedge, separate, conquer. God's is remove the barrier, bring together, and bring unity and conquer. Paul informs them, it's great to be zealous, great to boil, to be fervent over a good thing, and that good thing was the gospel of grace, not the abysmal return to Old Testament Judaism. Or folks, for our sake, the return to anything that's not of God. 
They were worried about Judaism, that all of us have a past that we don't ever need to go back to. Living in that sin, whatever it was we were in, never need to go back. Those idols are gone. The sea is closed behind us. The enemy has been defeated by the cross and the blood. We have been redeemed. We're on our way to the promised land. We can't go back. So it's the same idea that it was with these Galatians and and Judaism. We can't go back, shouldn't go back. There's nothing back there. Try it. You won't like it. Going from Paul's teaching, he now moves on to his travail. He moves to his travail. My dear children, I love this verse. Listen to his heart. This, this man, I know I'm a broken record here, but I got to say it again. I don't worship Paul, not, not even remotely, but I am so moved by this great apostle's heart. The more I study Paul, and I've, I've had to because I'm teaching these books he wrote. He wrote a few, you know, two-thirds of the New Testament. He used to be a persecutor, murdered, threatened, divided, imprisoned believers. And then God, Jesus, knocked him to the ground, revealed himself to him, saved him, called him. And now this once horrible persecutor of the church is the church's greatest blessing. And I hear his heart. Look at the way he's talking about the people he used to persecute. Can we read it out loud together? Just the first three words. My dear children. His voice used to terrify them. But listen to him now. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. Until what, everyone? Read it with me. Christ is formed in you. You want to know what God's will is for you? It's right there. It's right there. That's it. I mean, that's the ultimate That is the goal to which God makes everything for which and toward which God makes everything work for your good. That Christ is formed in you. You're carrying a baby. I'm carrying a baby. Figuratively speaking, figuratively speaking, Jesus has been born in us and he is being formed in us so that this time next year, we ought to be stronger in love stronger in joy, stronger in peace, greater in long-suffering, more gentle, more meek, more kind, have stronger faith because Christ is being formed in us. And Paul said, I'm in labor pain spiritually until this happens in you. Now, let me ask you a question. Has the will of God changed since then? No. So what's God's will? For everyone in this room and everybody listening by radio, what, what is God's will? It is Christ is formed in us. Now, we're about to get into Galatians where it's really, really, not that it hadn't all been good, but we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And we're going to see how, how by the Holy Ghost, the apostle is going to show us what Jesus looks like when he's formed in us and what it looks like if the flesh is formed in us. He says, I'm in childbirth. I'm having birth pangs. I'm having some agony until Christ is formed in you. The gospel is not just a set of precepts to be believed. It's not a book of rules and regulations, the gospel. It is a person to be received. Christ formed in you. Law 
is vastly inferior to grace. You're a product of grace tonight. And guess what? Good news. God didn't finish with you yet or with me. And the same spirit that moved on Paul and put him in, in birth pangs kind of agony until Christ was formed in those Galatians, the same spirit is praying for you and me that that is done. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. And what is he praying? That Christ would be formed in you and me. You don't measure a person's spirituality by how fast they talk in tongues, or how much money they have, or how many people are healed when they pray for them. That is not the measure of a person's spiritual maturity. You know what the measure is? How much has Christ been formed in them? Quiet tonight. Quiet. What about somebody with great faith, Pastor? I've known people with great faith that were squalling babies spiritually, still messing their diapers. The law says do, grace says done. Law says try, grace says trust. Law says it's up to you, grace says it's up to him. Good stuff now. Now watch this, law takes us to Mount Sinai weekly, yearly. Hence, Paul's travail us to Mount Calvary. Grace provides not only for the believer to become a child of God, and I love this next part, but also for the child of God to become a man of God or a woman of God. Oh, till Christ is formed in you, turning point, and me, daily, hourly, weekly, yearly. Hence, Paul's travail that Christ be formed in you. Paul stands at the path of their departure from grace by the bad influence of these Judaizers, and he cries, stop, wrong way, turn back. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. Having referred to his teaching and then to his travail in prayer for them, he next references his trouble. He says in verse 20, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I stand in doubt about you. Now, he's not pulling any punches, is he, church? He's not being politically correct, is he? He's saying, I'm, I'm in doubt about you, kiddos. I, I'm worried about you. The tone of Paul's letter to the Galatians was severe and uncompromising and full of threats and full of thunder. He did not hold back. And thank God that he didn't. He told the truth. He stood before them waving his hands vigorously as the train of their faith raced towards a collapsed bridge. He would rather change his tone and be gentle, but he couldn't because they wouldn't hear him. So he had to be strong. You know, some, there's some people you can just say, don't, and they'll stop. Other people, you can stand in their face and scream, don't, and they still don't stop. You gave birth to some of them, right? He says, I, I wish I could be gentle, 
but I can't because you won't hear me. So I'm going to have to be tough. I'm going to have to be real. I'm going to have to be harsh and tell you the way it is. Paul was extremely resourceful in his choice of options and how to reach communicatively that, that strange church. <clears throat> so having used warnings and threats and sarcasm and logic and appeal, he next takes them to Sinai, where the law was given to Moses and to Calvary, where gl- grace flowed from the cross. Now he says in verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? He said, do you know what you're really wanting to do? Let me illuminate you. He says, very well. You believe you know the word of God, yet you can't discern between law and grace. You think you know the word, but you can't even tell the difference between law and grace. In other words, you're not as smart as you think. You're not as wise as you think. Let me give you an illustration, he says, of what you're doing out of Old Testament history. Now, the apostle next uses an allegory to make his point. Now, here's an allegory. Here's what it is. In an allegory, the various entities that make up the story, whether imaginary or historical, stand for something else beyond the actual story itself. We might use the word metaphor. Uh, It's metaphorical, allegorical, or metaphorical. When you use one thing to symbolize another. Now, he's about to use an allegory or a metaphor. People used in the allegory or the metaphor are going to stand for an idea or a concept. So he draws their attention to Abraham's two sons and their mamas. In verse 22, he says, it is written that Abraham had two sons. The one by what kind of a woman? The bondwoman. And the other by a free woman. So here he goes, using the allegory, the bondwoman and the free woman. So Paul fully believed that God's hand was on the details of Abraham's life, providentially. That Abraham, up to the marriage of Isaac, would have two wives and only one son by each was no accident in Paul's mind. He said they both have meaning. Now, he's not saying that God made Abraham make the mistake he made, but he is saying that God providentially oversaw it and used it for his glory, and so it's significant. The two sons represent two realities. So Paul points out next in verse 23, he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. That's Ishmael. And he of the free woman was born through promise, and that was Isaac. Now, the first son, Ishmael, represents the flesh. The birth of Ishmael involved nothing of faith. Matter of fact, it involved doubt. They were getting older, and they were getting uptight about God's plan for their life. And they said, I think God doesn't realize how old we are. How many of you have ever said, I don't think God sees my situation? Come on. I don't think he he gets it. So we go into prayer and we spend a whole hour telling God what he already knows. He's Abraham and and Sarah got uptight. I mean, he he said, I'm getting really old. And you're 10 years behind me, woman, but you're old too. And so apparently God's not going to come through. 
So we're going to have to make His will happen in the strength of our own will and our own flesh. Big mistake Big mistake. You make most of your mistakes when you think God's late. You make most of your mistakes when you think God is late and doesn't see your situation and you're looking at your watch and you're looking in the mirror and you're looking at circumstances and you're going, "Uh uh-oh, God doesn't get it or something's wrong between me and him. So I'm going to make it happen myself. And when you do, you are crossing over into the Ishmael zone because you're going to hatch an Ishmael. You're going to give birth to an Ishmael. And we're going to see in a minute what happens when you do that. The birth of Ishmael involved nothing of faith. He was the product of fleshly activity, worldly policy, and doubt. Ishmael was produced in the energy of the flesh and man's will. It's easy to birth an Ishmael. Guess what? Our churches are full of them. There are whole churches that are Ishmael's. They weren't birthed out of the will of God. They were birthed out of the strength of the flesh. Presumption. I want a church. Only problem is when you create an Ishmael by the strength of the flesh, you got to keep Ishmael alive by the strength of the flesh. And you've got to keep him going at the strength of the flesh. And when it's an Ishmael, he never ultimately brings glory to God. And he doesn't help you much either. Our churches are full of them. How many of you? Now, I'll tell you first. I've done it. I've had some Ishmaels. What about you? The rest of you, hang on. You'll do one sooner or later. No, I'm not going to speak that over you. You may not. But our churches are full of Ishmaels, things that, that, that we decided we wanted, and we made them happen, and God's just in the background somewhere, and he didn't really birth it. Now, the birth of the second son, Isaac, was super natural. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90. That's supernatural. Abraham believed God, the Bible says, and God wrought the miracle. Isaac was born of faith and was the child of promise. And that's what you want in your life. You want Isaacs and not Ishmaels. You want what faith produces, not what your flesh produces. You want want that which is going to propel you towards your goal and your vision, not that which is going to hinder you and drag you back. Now, the apostle brings the allegory to its main point. Let's look at what it was. In verses 24 to 25, he says, which things are in allegory? So he uses the word himself. For these two women are the two covenants. That's what they stood for. That's the metaphor. These two women, Hagar and Sarah, are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to or compares to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. For Paul, Hagar represents legalism, the flesh, the will of man, not faith, not God, not victory, but defeat and flesh 
and man's will. That which is born and empowered of the flesh is what Hagar represents. Because Sarah said, Abraham, go to Hagar, go into her tent, and produce a child because God has clearly forgotten us. He said, yes, ma'am. What he did. Here comes Ishmael. And Hagar symbolizes Mount Sinai, where the Mosaic covenant was given. And the writer of Hebrews, I want you to notice how the writer of Hebrews describes Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. It's really something. It's scary. Hebrews 12, 18, he says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that may be burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. So that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. It terrified them compared to Jesus, of whom it was said, the common people heard him gladly. But here at Mount Sinai, at the giving of the law, God said, if you come any closer, you're going to die on the spot. Don't come any closer. And there was thundering and lightning and God's thunderous voice, and it was terrifying, and the people were afraid. And they said, Moses, you go talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. He scares us. So the whole scene of Mount Sinai and the giving of the law was somber and frightening and intimidating. It seems like these that give the God of the Old Testament his negative reputation. Oh, I don't believe in that Old Testament God. I, I believe in the God of the New Testament. My dear one, they're both the same. They're both the same. They're not two gods, one in the old and one in the new. You just have two different aspects of the same God. In the Old Testament, you see the holiness of God. In the New Testament, you see the love of God. But they're the same God. And I'll tell you, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and the God of the New is the God of the Old. And that same God is the God that's going to judge the nations at the end of time and is judging nations right now. On the other hand, Paul views Sarah as representing the new covenant, the covenant of grace. He summarizes it in one word, emancipation, freedom from slavery. He relates it not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion and to the heavenly Jerusalem. He says in verses 26 and 27, now y'all do know, remember when we went through the book of Revelation, there is a new Jerusalem in heaven right now awaiting to be adorned uh, by God and waiting to receive the saints of God into her borders. That new Jerusalem is going to be lowered down to the earth one day, but it's in glory right now. The new Jerusalem. The architecture is finished. The building is complete. You can read about it in Revelations. And he says here, speaking of that Jerusalem, he says, that Jerusalem up there is free. And it's the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. <clears throat> For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. When we accept Christ, we are delivered from the power of darkness and are translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. 
Now notice, you were delivered not just from darkness, but from its power. I'm going to say that again. You were not just delivered from spiritual darkness, but from its power, its enslavement, its influence. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but you're under grace. You see? So we were translated into the kingdom and into the power of the kingdom of God's dear son. Hence, God's children are free as the new Jerusalem above is free. I want you all to say with me, I'm free. free. Not your neighbor and look at him and say, I'm free. free. Now, some of you are just thinking to yourself, I just told a lie because I'm battling some things. But you know the way God sees you? You're free. You know what else you are? You're already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're already there. You're free indeed. And, and next week, we're going to deal with the subject of freedom. And it is so rich, I was so tempted to leap over this and just go into next week. But I can't because we're doing expository teaching through Galatians that I can't wait for next week. Now, well, I got messed up. I got so excited, I messed up. Now, so we are translated in the kingdom of God's dear son. Hence, God's children are free. The Lord now reigns in the heavenly Jerusalem, which is also mentioned in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. Here's what and where you live as far as God's concerned. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And what's there? An innumerable company of angels. He goes on. And the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered, whose names are in the book of life. That's you. And as far as God's concerned, you're already there in the city. To God, the judge of all, and who else is there? To the spirits of just men made perfect. Notice he says spirits. Anybody in here have a glove? Just, I know that's a weird request. If it fits, then you must equip. No, let me see. Here we go. Now, I want to do something real quick, just so that, because I get asked this question a lot. Interesting. That'll do. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute. The Bible, look what he says. What is in the New Jerusalem? Uh, The spirits of just men made perfect. Not the bodies, but the spirits. Now, you are like this glove with the hand in it. The glove represents the body. The hand represents the soul, which is eternal. Now, here's what people ask me at funerals all the time, because they want to know about their loved one. They say, are they in heaven? Or are they just in soul sleep somewhere, and they're not going to be in heaven until that day when Jesus comes back? Or where are they, Pastor Jeff? Now, let me show you how it works. As long as the the soul is in the glove, it's animated, it moves, it has a life. Okay, it's it's a living thing. It, It has motion, it's alive. But the day will come 
when that person, their body dies. The glove dies. Now, when the glove dies, Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Well, what did he mean? He meant that when a Christian dies, the glove is what is in that casket. The glove is what is in that ground. The, the, the glove is buried. But I always hear this at funerals. People look in that casket and they go, it, it's beautiful, but they're not there. That's not them. And you know why they say that? Because it's not. Because here's what happened. The minute they, their, their glove, the body died, the soul immediately went up into the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> <sighs> It immediately goes up into the presence of the Lord. And we bury the glove. But the Bible says, Behold, we shall not all sleep, the glove in the casket, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trump. The dead in Christ, the glove, will rise first. And we who are alive and remain should we be fortunate enough to be there for the rapture, we'll be caught up together, watch this, with them. Hey there, it's been a while since I saw you. Hey, how are you doing? No, no, no. <clears throat> and so shall we ever be in the new Jerusalem with the Lord. So, is there soul sleep? No. Is there purgatory? Creation of the Catholic Church, medieval Catholic Church. Not biblical. All that happens is the glove goes in the ground, the soul goes up. When Jesus returns, the glove comes out and receives a glorified body. Jesus is going to give you what curves could never give you. A glorified body. You're not going to worry about losing weight or being fit. You're going to walk through a door without opening it and then eat. You're going to have a body like his. So is that clear to everybody? So, so when you do bury that loved one, you, you really only bury the glove. They're already with the Lord, fellowshipping with the Lord, and they wouldn't come back if they could. That's why Paul said, absence from the body, in the grave, present with the Lord. He said, boy, I'll tell you, I could stay and be with you, but to go be with the Lord would be so much better. But because I love you, I'll stick around for a while, but boy, I really want to be with him. Paul knew. You kill this glove. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill your glove, the body, but they can't kill the soul. Fear him who can take both this and your soul and cast them into hellfire. Then he said, indeed, fear him. Thank you. This glove's anointed now. <laughs> Isn't that good? So we are not as those... 
We are not as those who have no hope. Amen. Now look who else is there. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling, this speaks way better things than that of Abel. Now summarizing, in Galatians, Paul sees a parallel between the freedom that we have in Christ and the birth of Isaac, the son of the free woman, just as Hagar symbolically represented Mount Sinai, so Sarah, the free woman, represents Mount Zion, where all of the redeemed ultimately will come into the full blessing of the Messianic New Covenant. Now, closing out the chapter, Paul delivers four quick stabbing statements to drive home his point. Let's look at them quickly, and then we're going to close. First, say with me, there is the outlook. Now, we brethren, he says in verse 28, chapter 4 of Galatians, now, we brethren, as Isaac was, we are children of promise. That's the outlook. That'll be your outlook and mine. We are a child of promise. How was Isaac born? Answer me. By faith. How are we born again? How was Isaac formed in Sarah's womb? And how is Christ formed in our hearts? You bet. Same way. Did the law have anything to do with Isaac's birth? None. Did the law have anything to do with our rebirth? None. The gospel did it. Now next, Paul addresses the outrage. First the outlook, now the outrage. Verse 29, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, everybody say with me, so it is now. Now here's a principle that is cross-cultural, cross-time and space, and it's true at all times and in many different ways. Here it is. If you've got something in your life that's born of the flesh, it's always going to persecute what is born of the Spirit. There ain't no room in the same house for the flesh and the Spirit. I use ain't on purpose. Catch this now, because here's what happened. The household jealousy between Ishmael and Isaac was intense. For 13 years, Ishmael had enjoyed Abraham's full attention and love. Come here, son. Come here, little buddy. Let's go out hunting. Let's go fishing. Let's... You're my buddy. You're my son. Think about it. It gets me. He loved that boy. 13 years until the child of faith was born. Abraham was very honest and told us, I'd have been happy if God would have let Ishmael be the one. He even prayed, let Ishmael suffice. And God said, nope, he's not the child of faith. Child of faith will come through Sarah. So then came Isaac. Ishmael began to mock the child of faith. Bottom line, the flesh and the spirit can't live peacefully in the same house. Ishmael began to see Isaac, or began to see Isaac and then Abraham paying attention to him. And they were thrilled because this was indeed a child of faith, a miraculous birth. And all the attention switched from Ishmael to Isaac. And if you've got kids, you know what that does. You can't show favoritism. If you do, you're stupid. Because you'll have trouble in your house. 
Even if you like one of them better, don't say it. Because he began to resent him, and so then he began to mock him. Ishmael began to mock Isaac and persecute him and slap him around. Because remember, he's 13, this is a little baby. So when Ishmael was, you know, 16, 17, and here's Isaac, four and five years old, he, he was treating him badly and roughing him up and resenting him and hating him. And finally, Sarah said to Abraham, the same woman who told him, go in there and be with Hagar, that same woman said, get rid of that boy. He's got to go. And that's hard. But I'm going to tell you something, church. There are times you've got to take a work of the flesh in your life. And you've got to be ruthless with it. And you've got to say, you've got to go. An addiction, something that is constantly persecuting the work of God in your life. It persecutes the work of God in your life. It drags it down. It, it, it's against it. The flesh against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. Paul talked about the conflict. Whatever the Ishmael is, if it's possible, and more times than not it is, and I'm not telling you to be mean to a person, especially never to a child, but... I'm just saying, I'm talking figuratively now, a work of the flesh. My experience has been when Jesus came into my heart, he immediately declared war on all the works of the flesh in my life. And I knew there's some things I'm going to have to kick out of the house. Are y'all with me? There are some things I'm going to have to kick out of the house. Now, lest I'm misunderstood and, and, and you're married and you think you made an Ishmael move, we're in a whole different arena there. Don't you dare walk out of here and say, Pastor Jeff, Jeff told me to kick you out. Don't you do it. I want to be clear here. I don't want to be blamed. I don't want to be misinterpreted. But you know what the Ishmaels are. A lot of times they, they, they are carryover from your past. They are what was hatched before you even knew the Lord. What was born before you even knew the Lord. Sometimes once you know the Lord, you, you, you do some things, you open some doors, and you birth an Ishmael, and, and more times than not, it's doable to choose the Spirit over the flesh. And so you've got to get out of the house, house being me. <clears throat> Paul says, so it is even now. Having pointed out the outlook and the outrage, Paul points to the outlaw. Nevertheless, he says in verse 30, what does the Scripture say? Read it with me, everybody. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. When Sarah saw Ishmael mocking Isaac, she demanded the immediate expulsion of Hagar and her son. And it's a heartbreaking thing to read. She goes out in the desert. She thinks they're going to die out there. They don't have any water. She falls in is it true? Do we not now see the Islamic world demanding everyone come under Sharia law and everyone submit to Islam and they feel like that is their God-given call and if you don't, you should be killed? You'll be a wild man. Every hand will be against him and his hand against every man. 
That's what God said. Personalities. Is it true? Do we not now see the Islamic world demanding everyone come under Sharia law and everyone submit to Islam and they feel like that is their God-given call and if you don't, you should be killed, he'll be a wild man. Every hand will be against him and his hand against every man. That's what God said. God says, cast out the works of the flesh, remove the Ishmaels, for the works of the flesh will always mock, resist, and hinder the work of the Spirit. And then finally, Paul gives the outcome. And we'll close with this. Verse 31. So then, brethren, let's read this together. It's good news. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Amen. (coughs) This could not be clearer. Paul has laid out an illustration that cannot be forgotten, especially by these Jews in Galatia. They knew all this, these stories. We are either of Hagar or of Sarah. We are of Mount Sinai or Mount Zion, of the flesh or of the spirit. Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The Galatian church likely sat in stunned silence as Paul's searching letter was read in their midst. It was starting to get through. Next time, the law of liberty. Let's stand together. Isn't that good? Now, can we just lift our hands and say, Lord, I'm free. I'm born of the free woman. And if Jesus has set me free... I am free indeed. Now give him a hand of praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come on, you can do better than that. God is good. God is good. God is good. Father, what can we say? We are so moved by these truths, by Paul's heart for his precious children in the faith, His longing for them to reach into the fullness of the stature of Christ. His allegory of the free woman and the bondwoman, the law and the spirit. And Lord, having received you by grace through faith, we will stand fast in the liberty whereby Christ has set us free. Lord, we ask you, grace us to not be entangled again in any yoke of bondage. We thank you for it, Father, in the name of Jesus.